Hello everyone and welcome back to Project Next. I'm Finn Blake and I'm bringing to light success stories to empower the next generation. Today on episode 8, I'm talking to Richard Oppie, the VP of Global Brands at AB InBev. As part of his role, Richard oversees the brand strategy of some of the world's most iconic beers, such as Budweiser and Corona. In this episode, Richard explains how he climbed the corporate hierarchy to end up managing some of the biggest brands in the world. Although Richard originally saw this career path as a plan B to playing AFL football, he really has climbed the ladder to the top. The Aussie New Yorker also gives some strong insight into branding trends of the future, including NFTs and influencer marketing. I can promise you, you'll get plenty out of this episode if you're interested in brands, business, or the future of marketing. I'm sounding like a broken record, but if you're a fan of this episode, don't forget to hit that five-star button and leave us a review below. I can't wait to hear about how to make a career out of beer, so let's get straight into it. So Richard Oppie, the Vice President of Global Brands for AB InBev, uh, thank you so much Richard for joining me. You are based in New York so it doesn't seem fitting for you to be having a coffee at this hour so I've got my coffee on my end but what have you got on your end? It's uh, beer o'clock over here Finn so uh, I'm having a beer, uh, actually having Stella Artois, one of, uh, one of my favourite brands and it's been a long time since I last had a beer with you over here. So Richard, I would love to go right back to the start and I, I can't imagine that you would have um, wanted to be uh, in the beverage industry as a kid. So what did you actually want to be when you, were gr- when you grew up? When I was a child growing up, like a lot of Australians, I, my big dream was to play AFL football. I loved it. I lived and breathed it. And uh, that was always plan A. And uh, I'm glad I had a plan B because um, I ended up obviously not being good enough, not getting drafted. Played with uh, some great players uh, in the under-18s at Oakley Chargers and you know, had the dream then, but uh, unfortunately I wasn't good enough. So uh, that didn't happen. And so, yeah, I had to revert to plan B. And so you did finish up at high school and then jumped into Monash University to do marketing and management. Uh, can you tell me about the decision-making process at that time and what sort of um, urged you to jump into that degree? To be honest, Finn, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. And I think it's tough when you're at school, you're in year 10, 11, 12, to really know exactly what you want to do. Uh, I grew up in a, in a family business that was a, a small engineering business uh, that was very successful, but... You know, I worked out in the early days that that wasn't for me uh, and that I wasn't going to be very good at engineering and, and my father agreed with me. And you know, my, I looked at sort of around the family and you know, my uncle was a lawyer, but I thought that was going to be boring. I had another uncle that was a, a doctor and you know, my brother went down that path into medicine and, and one of my sisters went into, the, into that field with physio. But it wasn't for me. Like I, I fainted at the, the sight of a drop of blood. So... That was never going to be for me. And <laughs> the only thing I would say, I was, I was okay. I was pretty good at numbers uh, at school. And, and I, I loved the business side of things. And so I knew I wanted to go into, into business. I just wasn't sure exactly what. And, uh, and so, so when I thought about it, it's like I, I, love, I love people. I love, th- I love the way people think. And uh, I also love brands. And so growing up, you know, I always uh, 
admired brands like Nike, uh, you know, the Air Jordans back in the day. Um, and I also love, you know, I thought about uh, other brands like I used to always drink Solo and I'm sure I got sucked into the, the Solo Man advertising and slam it down <laughs> fast and the kayaker going down the river there. And so I knew I wanted to, I decided I wanted to go into marketing uh, and, and to work on, on, on brands that people were passionate about and brands that people love. So, yeah, I chose to, to do the marketing management degree and, and I'm really glad I did that. And then, so you finish up with your degree and jump straight into CUB. What was it that stood out for you in the beverage industry? Because you mentioned that you wanted to work on brands that people loved. Was this a bit of a standout for you? Well, it was, it was in the fourth year because it was a four-year degree. And I had applied for a number of the graduate programs. And then I saw this poster uh, at university that said, dream job, come and work on some of the biggest beer brands in the world with some of the most the major sponsorship properties in Australia. And for me, it just clicked. I was like, oh, that, that's me. I love my sport. I love big brands and I love drinking beer. So it, it ticked all the boxes and, and I got very nervous because I was just so keen to get this role and I knew it was going to be super competitive because they had advertised at all the major universities and it was a rigorous process so to get through to the very end of that and to, to become an assistant brand manager um, I, I was stoked it was it was a dream dream job for me and at the time a group of my friends went overseas for 12 months and you know I had to pull out because I finished university and, and started at CUB uh, two weeks later and went straight into it. So Richard, you've been on both sides of that recruiting process, obviously. So you, you were, would have been applying and you would have had the nerves and everything going into it. But then you would have been hiring as well, I'm sure, at some point. So what would the advice be to young people who are trying to break into the, the beverage industry and particularly in brands? Finn, one thing we talk about at, at AB InBev, where I'm now, is that, you know, People are, are our competitive advantage and we want to recruit people that are better than us. So I spend three or four hours a week minimum interviewing people and, uh, and interviewing the, the best talent. Um, and what my advice is, you know, if you can, uh, try and get into to one of the best courses um, and, and do, do, do your best. Um, and, you know, over here, you know, we're interviewing some of the top graduates from the, the, the top universities, the top colleges. Um, but it's not everything. You know, there are other ways to get in. So, you know, often people think if I don't get the top marks and I don't get into the top course that it's all over. Um, I think with marketing these days, you know, to stand out, you know, it's not just, you know, you having to have the smarts uh, because there's a lot of people out there that are smart also looking at people that have strong leadership skills, really strong leadership quality, people that, that are curious, because this is a, an industry that's so dynamic, that moves so quickly. And so you need to be curious, you need to be, you need to be learning the, the entire time. And people that are in tune with culture, you know, yep. and, uh, and knowing really what are the trends, what's going on in culture, uh, helps give you that competitive advantage. And I think, yeah, I think moving forward, you know, more and more are going to be like the digital natives, you know, so those people that uh, 
uh, are ahead of the curve and uh, are really strong you know, with the, the bottom of the funnel as well. And so we're looking even these days more at people that have a strong D2C background because mm-hmm. you know, those people are very good with data, analytics, you know, they know where every dollar they're spending, what's working, what's not working, what's driving conversion, what's not. Uh, so I think there are different ways in. Awesome. I think there's some great advice in there, Richard. And, and so back to your story as well, your early days at CUB, uh, when did you realize that that was going to be the place for you? Because you did climb the ladder all the way to the top. So at what point in your early days did you go, all right, this feels like home? Oh, pretty early on. Like the, <laughs> the, the, just the culture, it was like being with my mates, being with my friends at work. Like everyone worked really hard. So we had this culture of work hard, play hard but you could imagine for me it was you know I was in like a a dream job like to be able to work on Victoria Bitter and you know I was going to uh, the Allen Border Medal and I was uh, I was going to all the cricket sponsorships the NRL sponsorships and then working on Carlton Draft you know I got to go to a lot of the AFL games a lot of the AFL promotions that we ran the grand finals the Brownlows so you could, you could imagine for someone that loves their sport and loves their brands that pretty quickly uh, I worked out that I love the culture at CUB and uh, it was going to be a place for me, hopefully, for, for a long time. And, you know, 20 years later, uh, I'm still in the beer game and uh, I've had different owners over that time, but essentially the same beer company. And so, Richard, you did work across a variety of uh, products at CUB. I've got Carlton Dry, Carlton Draft, Great Northern, VB and Crown Lager. So which was your favourite beer to brand and what were the best campaigns that you were working on at that time? The the two of my favourite memories working on individual brands were were Victoria Bitter and and Carlton Draft. Uh, Victoria Bitter, I had the... Uh, the pleasure of, of returning VB back to the big cold beer, back to 4.9% alcohol. And yep. you probably won't remember, but back in the day, the alcohol was reduced to, to from 4.9 down to 4.8, then down to 4.6. And we saved a lot of money on excise tax by having a lo- lower alcohol. But we upset a lot of our drinkers, and they were fanatical about the brew and how dare you play with the brew. And, and a number of our drinkers w- walked away. And having one walk away is one too many. So we made the decision to, to take all the excuses away and we took VB back to 4.9%. We brought back the iconic advertising. We brought back the, the heritage packaging. And we actually relaunched the brand on Breakfast Radio back with... Uh, with Mick and Eddie and Dars on, on the hot breakfast. And, and you wouldn't believe it, at 6.37 in the morning, outdoor broadcast, it was packed. People at all were celebrating early in the morning. They all took the day off work. And uh, I, I just couldn't believe how passionate people were about Victoria Bitter and, uh, and about the brew. And I think it comes back to, you know, a key lesson for marketers is, you know, you have to be very careful and, uh, we, we, we talk at AB InBev that the consumer is the boss. And so every decision we make must be the right decision for the consumer. If we're making the right decision yep. for the company, like we did in this case, to save money, but it wasn't the right time, right thing for the consumer, then uh, we wouldn't do that at AB InBev. And I think that was a key lesson for us 
Um, and you know, we took it back to 4.9% and we did see a return and see the brand stabilize. And that was the right decision long-term and it hasn't been changed since. So that was, uh, that, that, that was definitely one of my favorite memories uh, back in the day. And then I think the other one that I loved working on just was Carlton Draft. It was a brand that I think we did some of the most iconic advertising with that brand back in the day. Uh, but the, the one that I'm probably most proud of uh, is, is the work that we did with the launch of the Carlton Draft front bar. Because mm-hmm. you know, that, that was an idea that was born... Actually, I was uh, over in New York, uh, believe it or not, 2014 with uh, Mick Malloy and Das uh, as part of a, a hot breakfast promotion. And, and I was talking to Mick one night and geez, he's a, a lot of fun to travel with, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. just, uh, just about Carlton Draft, which was a brand about friends coming together, mates coming together at the pub to drink fresh draft beer. And it was a brand that was always the great leveler. Didn't matter if you're a doctor, a lawyer, or a marketer, you're all on the same level when you're drinking Carlton Draft. And it was a brand that didn't take itself too seriously. And and Mick sort of came to me and mentioned, hey, I've got an idea for you uh, around a, a, a sport footy show. And I thought it was Mick after a few Carlton Drafts, uh, you know, talking it up and making up some stories. And then we got back to... Australia, and he, and he, the next week he came with A.D. Brown and uh, presented the idea. And I just thought it was a great idea, and it was perfect for Carlton Draft. And it, it didn't feel like advertising. It felt naturally integrated into the content. And so we decided to give it a go. And we, we, we ran it initially through afl.com.au. And I remember calling Russell Howcroft, who's a, a ripper bloke, really like yep. Russ, and... And he was at Channel 10 at the time. I said, Russ, I think this could take on Channel 9 footy show. And, and he, he laughed at me. He said, you're kidding yourself. Maybe, maybe we could put it on a, the, a digital channel. And, but that's the best you're going to get. So I've just been so proud of Mick and Rich Malloy and A.D. Brown. And then obviously Andy Marr and Sam Pang. What they have done as a team, I think it's phenomenal. And I think it's been great for the Carlton Draft brand. And to see it there now, right, as the number one footy show, uh, I think is fantastic. So, Richard, I, I know we could probably do a, a complete separate podcast on this, but take me into your mind when you're considering, for example, you know, Budweiser. Uh, what would be the, the main touch points that you would want to nail to you know, get that brand recognition? What, what goes into making the decisions uh, to go with certain you know, colours and, and strategies and things like that? I'm fortunate to work across sort of Budweiser, Stella Artois, Corona, and uh, and, and Michelob Ultra. But the one that I think is probably the best example for people is Corona, uh, for for those that are in Australia, because I mean Corona is a brand that's very well positioned, and consumers won't necessarily say this, and people, but we talk about that brand that it's a purpose. Our purpose is to help people disconnect from routine and to reconnect with their essential nature and how we bring that to life is we inspire people to escape to the great outdoors escape outside because it's outside where we feel alive and people don't realize that but what sits behind that is we spend over 90 percent of our lives indoors 
if you think about when we're sleeping, when we're working, you know, we're, we're, we're always indoors. So this is a brand that wants to get people outdoors. And, yep. and when you open that bottle, you know, we want to transport people to paradise. And so we set up our brand world on the beach. And so when you open a Corona, mentally, it takes you to this place of paradise where you're relaxing with your friends or with yourself on a beach and you put that lime, which is a clear differentiator for Corona, as you put that lime in the bottle, you know, it evokes refreshment and uh, gives you that feeling of paradise. And that's what we all sort of dream on, you know, going on those holidays. And so that's a brand that I think has done it very well and it's been very consistent over time. And, you know, I had a lot of arguments back in the time. I'd be like, oh, Corona, people are getting bored of Corona. They're sick of just seeing the beach. And, and we, need to, we need to do more. But the reality is that positioning has worked incredibly well all around the world, not just Australia, but it works everywhere around the world. And uh, it's one of, I think, the, the best position brands globally. That's, that's what I'll be thinking next time I crack open a Corona is that I'll, I'll be on the beach. It's, it's pretty exactly. cold down in Melbourne, so looking, looking forward to transporting myself to a beach somewhere. So, Richard, um, in 2014, you were promoted to Marketing Director of CUB. Uh, tell me about what you wanted to achieve in this role. Prior to taking on the Marketing Director role, we had had something like 12 Marketing Directors in 12 years. And every Marketing Director came in, saw how big Victoria Bitter was, and said, we're gonna turn VB around. We're gonna turn VB around. And I had been around, as you could imagine, uh, for the 12, 14 years and, and seen all these marketing directors come in and I, I was part of the journey, remember? Uh, even taking it back to 4.9 and, and I knew that we'd thrown everything at it and that it wasn't gonna be sustainable to turn this a brand around for growth. And so, at that, that stage, when I took on the role as marketing, I was actually in an acting role for six months whilst they looked for the best uh, marketing person for that role. Um, and in that time, I, I, instead of acting, I decided that I really wanted the role and I was going to act as though it was my role. So that's the way I, I behaved. And you know, the strategy was clear at that stage. It was like, we're not going to try and ret- turn around brands like Victoria Bitter and Carlton Draft. You know, we're going to understand what the trends are, where the growth is going to be, where are consumers heading, and we're going to invest ahead of the curve to, to rebalance our portfolio towards growth. And so I could see the trends were clear. People were moving towards more easy drinking style of beers. People were actually moving towards lower alcohol beers, looking for moderation. People were looking for premiumization was a big trend. And so was health and wellness. And so what we were able to do is we knew that's where, that's where consumers were heading. And so the loss of volume we were seeing in Carlton Draft and VB was being picked up by brands like Great Northern, Pure Blonde, Carlton Dry, and then into Premium. And so we actually were able to rebalance the portfolio towards growth. And we actually turned the, the entire beer category back into growth. And we were gaining consistent share year over year and so that's something that you know i was really proud of the team and everything that uh, they did Um, and it was a great experience and and i think that was one of the key lessons for us and so fast forward to 2019 the start of 2019 and you've been called up 
to head up the uh, brands of AB and Bev in New York. Uh, tell me about that transition because it would have been a pretty big move to take your family over to New York uh, in itself. But tell me about the transition into the role as well. It was tough, Finn, to be honest. It was, uh, it was a dream job for me you know, to have the opportunity to work on you know, the biggest beer brands in the world in, in Budweiser, you know, Corona, Stella Artois and, and Michelob Ultra, which is a huge brand in the US and growing incredibly, uh, incredibly fast. And it, the reason it was tough because you could imagine that a lot of the marketers in the business around the world uh, it's one of uh, one of the more aspirational jobs to take in the company, and so I knew it was very competitive, and you know there, you, you had to really uh, have thick skin because you know as you, the the closer you get to, to the sun, you know the hotter it gets, and uh, and you can get burnt very quickly. So you know stakeholder management uh, I found was was critical. The, we had a new global chief marketing officer, and, and he backed me into this role uh, based on a, a recommendation because he, he actually hadn't worked with me previously. Uh, yep. Our CMO that I'd worked with uh, for the years before that, uh, he left the business and became the chief executive officer of Kraft Heinz globally. And so, you know, I had to learn to dance again with a new boss, and he is uh, a fantastic marketer. An uh, inspirational leader and someone that I love working with, and I've learned a lot. But you know, the first year was hard. You know, knowing, working at how each other other work, how each other operates. Um, but it was a dream job. Uh, but at the time, you know, it was tough because you weren't running these global brands, and people in the local markets they want to run the brands. They, they don't want to just execute what's coming from global. And so there was a lot of tension. A lot of tension. Uh, early days, I was getting in in fights constantly, and so w- what I decided to do. There's probably two things that that I, that we focused on. One was we had a clear racy, and what that means is like who's responsible, who's accountable, who's the consult, and who's an inform. Mm-hmm. And so I set out the process for uh, all the different marketing work streams and had a clear racy, got the, the CMOs of each of the countries into a meeting with the global chief marketing officer and we all aligned on the racy. Uh, and we made it clear that if people went outside of the racy, that there were gonna be consequences. And it was important that their team knew that there would be consequences. And so that changed the attitude very quickly on the rogue operators that were going on in the local markets, trying to create their own work because you can't build a, a global brand with consistency if everyone's running off doing their own work. And, and then the other thing we did was we created steering committees. So we would get the top six to 10 countries and we'd have a representative of each country sitting on the global steering committee and we get them to help with the work. So you know we might find that if it's a rational functional campaign that's relevant in five markets, we'll get those five key markets together working with someone from GHQ and the Global Brands team. And that way we have the voice of the country, the voice of the consumer sitting at the table as we create the work. So we gave them skin in the game by being on the steering committee and it's really helped. It's made the work better and the relationship's much stronger 
and it feels like one team now. It's not global and local. It's like one global brands team, and I don't care where they sit around the world, whether they're next to me in New York or whether they're in, in China, Brazil, uh, they're all part of the team. Yep. And so, Richard, especially during those pretty tense negotiations early on, you mentioned that you had all the CMOs in, in the room at the same time. What's, what sort of almost frameworks do you go into those meetings with? Because it'd be very hard to kind of pull it back if you went too far and, and went too hard. How do you manage even the cultural nuances that exist uh, in that room? Yeah, you have to be very, very conscious of the, the cultural nuances. Um, and like... You know, the Canadians and South Africans are, are, are much closer to the Australians, uh, whereas, you know, I'm very close with the, the CMO of China, uh, but you've got to be very careful. They don't like to lose face, you know, and you have to be careful the way you speak to them, particularly in front of their boss and in front of their team. And so it's a, uh, it's, it's a fine line, um, and, and I think the, the key is um, having... Uh, the emotional intelligence uh, to be able to read the room and and I'll, I don't want to give another sporting analogy but know how to get the <laughs> know how to get the best out of everybody so the way I speak to the, the the CMO in Brazil who I'm very close with you know I can have much tough conversations be very direct uh, but I will influence and get the same result but land that in a very different way the way I speak to say the CMO in China or South Korea so you have to be conscious of that. Um, I, also, I also work on the relationships. So I think people underestimate how important relationships are. Uh, and so in the early days, pre-COVID, I was on a plane every second week. I was in the market, so I understood their markets, understood their challenges. I was having beers you know, every night with them. Because everyone relaxes once they've had a few beers. You get to know them on a more of a personal level. And it was yep. a much stronger, once you build that strong relationship, and I talked to the team about having on-the-hook relationships, you know. When you, when you have an on-the-hook relationship, when you really trust someone, uh, you don't want to let them down. And, uh, and I've always been very clear that you won't hear anything behind your back. I'll never stab you behind your back, you know. I'll tell you to your face. Uh, and, and there'll be no surprises. And that's the way I operate. And I think people appreciate that. Um, so that's really helped, I think, galvanise the the global brands team uh, and, and bringing everyone together, knowing at the end of the day we're all on the same team. Our competitor is externally, uh, not internally. Whilst we have a high-performance culture and we have a very competitive culture, uh, we need to understand that at the end of the day we're working uh, on the same team. For sure. And so, Richard, I want to change tack a little bit and talk about uh, the Super Bowl because I know pre-COVID you love to go down to the Super Bowl uh, <laughs> most years and go and enjoy your time down there. As a marketer and a brand manager, does this feel like your grand final? <laughs> it's a little bit like the, the grand final. It's uh, it, it's a big moment. It's uh, a big expense. The last one we had was, was Miami and uh, it, it was huge. We had the the, the Budweiser Hotel, and and we don't do it uh, half-hearted. It was it was a it was an epic few days, and and we took over one one of the one of the big hotels on on South Beach there, and it was it was invite only. We had uh, two hundred and fifty of the top influencers from around the world, 
And it was great seeing uh, all these creators collaborating and, you know, people are like, how, how do you justify that as a, as, as a marketing expense and how could you justify it? And at the end of the day, it was, it was very easy. It was very clear because based on these influences, we could, we could, they committed by coming that uh, they would be posting their experience and, and what they were collaborating with other creators and we we have a very clear uh, what we call market mix modeling model um and and we could also see from the digital impressions we could see what the engagement was from people around the world we could see what the view through rates were uh and when you when you, when you looked at the cost of that event you know it was a strong ROI because we got back in excess of double digit in terms of millions of dollars of exposure from these creators, but it was just a different way of marketing. Uh, mm. And it was their people having amazing experiences with Budweiser, uh, tapping into these creators from around the world that gave us the exposure that we were looking for, rather than just putting a, a big TV uh, production on, on TV. So, yep. uh, and it was great and people loved it. Uh, you know, we had we had the Black Eyed Peas, uh, they were playing, <laughs> Will, I, Will I Am was going crazy, people, you know, one in the morning, we're uh, we're jumping in the pool and dancing, and it was uh, it was respond. They, they all they all they all drank responsibly, but it was nice. it was huge, and uh, we also gave consumers a chance to come, uh, select consumers that won promotions around the world to to be part of that experience. But yeah, it certainly is. It's like like our grand final for the year. Awesome, good to hear, Richard. And so um, the pandemic hits us obviously at the start of last year. How did the marketing priorities change for AB InBev? Because uh, it would have been a bit of a shockwave that would have been sent over, uh, not only New York where you were, but globally. Yeah, it, it was it was a big shock, and so we 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 jumped on a call every every morning, uh, seven a.m. New York time, with the the marketing community, all the leaders uh, around the world and their teams, uh, to to discuss basically daily actions. Uh, we, we pulled all our marketing campaigns straight away. I mean, you could imagine, you know, when everybody's locked up inside, uh, it doesn't make sense for Corona to be inspiring people to, to get outdoors. So, mm-hmm. you know, we had to change all of our campaigns and and we moved very quickly. Like, uh, that's something AB InBev's known for, is just their, their agility. Uh, the Budweiser team in the US, you know, I thought it did a fantastic job. Instead of you know, spending $5 million uh, on sports sponsorship over that time, we re-diverted that money towards uh, the Red Cross to support the frontline workers. And we worked with our sponsorship partners. We opened up the stadiums because uh, we were running out of blood. So we ran, uh, ran blood drives uh, to support uh, the industry. And so there were other things that we did very quickly. Like we, couldn't, we weren't allowed to sell beer there for a period of time because we had a number mm-hmm. of our breweries that were, were shut down. So we pivoted our breweries into making hand sanitizer because that's what people were in desperate need of. Uh, our breweries were also uh, making waters, filling up water bottles for people. We actually, uh, in Brazil and Mexico, we built two hospitals uh, and we had some of our breweries filling uh, tanks of oxygen. And so, you know, you wouldn't necessarily expect that of a brewer, uh, but it's something that the community really appreciated because that's what people needed at that time. And we saw our reputation increase significantly. And so when people could start drinking beer again, 
you know, our brands like Budweiser were, were, were top of mind and, and recovered strongly. And so, Richard, you mentioned earlier uh, the influencer initiatives and innovation that you've kind of experimented with uh, in, in digital native spaces. Uh, the most recent one that AB InBev has uh, experimented with is NFTs. Tell me about the uh, experimentation of NFTs and, and why do you think this gives you uh, the edge in terms of your competitors and is it trying to stay ahead of the curve? A lot of people don't know much about uh, NFTs and I don't profess to be an expert, <laughs> but the, the people I have uh, in the team and uh, the agency, we work with uh, Vayner, Gary Vaynerchuk and, uh, and Gary V. He's going big into this space, and so we decided to, to partner with Vayner, and uh, we're going to have a crack at this space because I, when I look at the trends, uh, I think it's going to become much bigger and bigger. I think for us, it's going to be less about digital art, the crypto punks of the world, and uh, for us, it's going to be more about how do we bring people closer to their their favorite artists their favorite sportsmen bring them closer to their favorite events like we discussed the the super bowl events or world cup that we are with one of the major sponsors and next year will be at qatar um and and how do we give people these amazing experiences uh, in the form of a, a smart contract that will sit uh, as a, as an nft um, and these will be extended over over multiple years so that, uh, you know, you've got value there. And, you know, at, at a very simple level, like when people used to go to, when people go to Super Bowl, you know, you see people that are lining up afterwards to buy your ticket as you're walking out. And I'm like, why would they want these tickets? But people want them for memories. And mm -hmm. uh, you're going to have, I believe, that uh, your digital wallet, your MetaMask wallet, it's going to be like your social currency in the future. Uh, and you know all those great experiences of the music concerts you go to, the sporting events, you're going to keep them all as, uh, I think they'll be in the form of NFTs, and you'll be keeping them in your digital wallets. And then there'll be uh, some brands that, uh, like we're, we're, you're going to see us do hopefully some, uh, some you know, exciting things in this space with both Budweiser and Salatoire and Corona in the next three months. Um, and you know you, you're going to see Stella Artois. Stella Artois will play in um, in in some of the art space, but it's also going to give people some experiences uh, and give them access to restaurants around the world that they wouldn't get access to without Stella Artois. Uh, and in the form of uh, an NFT, that token will give them the ticket to some of the best seats in the restaurants around the world. So it just gives you an idea of the role we can play, and I think we'll take it. Hopefully our brands take it from something that is relatively niche but getting much, much bigger uh, to more the masses. Uh, in similar way to what you probably would have seen with NBA Top Shot. Uh, yeah. that, that's what we're looking to do as we set up uh, the Bud Metaverse, the Budverse. So Richard, you did touch on the fact that it is a very nascent space and there's no guarantee that there will be a return on investment. It, there's, it's a very um, you know, speculative space. Uh, what makes you think that the risk is worth taking? Is that kind of an attitude that is consistent in all the moves that AB InBev takes? It's one of those things where what I love about AB InBev is we're prepared to take risks and, yep. and we're not hierarchical. And so when you see a trend, 
You know, we would rather place that bet, a calculated, take the calculated risk and be ahead of the curve rather than wait until it's too late. Because I think this is a space that people are still trying to work out how they play in it. We've been doing it now for a number of months, so we're, we're ready to go. Uh, and setting up these sustainable business models, they, they take time, particularly for, uh, for an alcohol company. Uh, but we're, we're pretty much ready to go now, whereas I think for brands that are going to try and follow, uh, they're going to find it much harder. And then, I, I mean, I look at Gary V. for those that know him, uh, he, 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 he sold 10,000-odd tokens and, and essentially had a smart contract with his VCon events for the next three years, and he, he sold them for like $50 million, you know? And, yep. and you, get, you get the residual uh, of every time it gets sold as well. And so I said to Gary, Gary, if you can do that yourself as one individual, I mean, we've got brands like Budweiser, Corona, Stellar Artois, Miklob Ultra. We've got access to some of the best sponsorship events around the world, some of the biggest ambassadors, biggest players like Lionel Messi. Uh, you know, he's one of our ambassadors. We just did yep. a campaign with Giannis Antetokounmpo. I'm like, surely we can amass more than 50 million if you can do that yourself. And... <laughs> So he laughed and uh, over a couple of beers and said, let's, uh, let's give it a crack. He agreed. Um, and so, yeah, we, we've gone into it uh, as it, with AB InBev across our portfolio with Budweiser leading the way. And, and I'm confident uh, we'll get a, a good return. Uh, and the question yep. is just going to be um, how sustainable is it and how this evolves uh, as it becomes more and more mainstream. Now, Richard, to finish up, I was, you've actually stolen my, um, my example I was going to mention because I was going to talk about the Lionel Messi campaign that I've just seen because it was one of my favourites, him le- leaving Barcelona and uh, the whole Budweiser uh, video that I saw on your LinkedIn. I, I, I really loved it. Uh, is there any particular campaign that sticks in your mind as, yeah, that was definitely my favourite? I, I, I did enjoy that. That, was, that, was, that one was the most recent one. People may not have, uh, or hopefully they did see it, but Lionel Messi, Messi broke the record of uh, 644 goals, so the most goals scored for any one club. And we thought, how do we come at this uh, with a more creative angle rather than just toasting and celebrating Messi for breaking the record? So we wanted to put our brand at the heart of it and we created a custom-made Budweiser bottle, but a big bottle. And on the Budweiser label, we had the goal number that was scored and we had one up to 644. And we had it framed in a a beautiful Budweiser box with a handwritten letter from Messi. And we gave everyone to the goalkeeper that he scored that goal <laughs> And so, you know, one poor goalkeeper had uh, had over 20 bottles uh, sent <laughs> to his house. And we were a little bit worried about how the goalkeepers were going to take it, given they were on the other end of it. But they were they were great. Uh, they, they all toasted on their social media to Messi, recognised him as, if not the GOAT, arguably one of the, the greatest of all time. And and it went viral and we got a lot of traction out of it. So I love that one just because it was a more creative way to, to, to toast Messi for breaking the record. 
for sure. So thank you so much, Richard Oppie, for taking the time uh, this evening from your perspective. It's, it's been awesome to hear about your story and, and the journey with CUB and then now AB in Bev. So thanks so much for taking the time and really looking forward to catching up for a beer when, uh, when borders allow. Sounds good, Finn. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me.